Bandwidth for this week in photography is brought to you by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. Hello, everybody. It is uh, another, yet another episode of This Week in Photography, and uh, we're, uh, we're here, there, and really everywhere. We're really spreading this whole thing out. Uh, here in the studio with me is Scott Bourne. Hey, Scott. Hello, and they said it wouldn't last. They said it wouldn't, but we're still here. Episode eight, we've proven them wrong. Yes, yes, definitely. And uh, also, uh, um, across the nation, we have Steve Simon. Hey, Steve. Hi, guys. Great to be back. In, uh, across just the lake. Just the, just the bay. Uh, we, um, we've got uh, Fred Johnson. Hey, Fred. Hello. Happy to be back. Now, where are you? Where Where do you actually work, or 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 so on, so forth? I I work and live in San Jose. Okay. Okay. Great. All right. There we go. And uh, and then we have a new guest, an old guest. You got to understand that Fred and and Ron Brinkman and I tried to start the show a couple times, and through te- through some technical difficulties, uh, the show sputtered a little bit. And uh, but we finally got Ron back on the show uh, for this. Hey, Ron. Great to be here. I, I fully expect to be hit by lightning partway through the show, but <laughs> hopefully, uh, this is this is literally the fourth time that we've tried. Or I've tried to be on. And I, I, I checked the. I think I sent you an email. I checked my my old calendar, and the first time we recorded our first attempt was back in '06. Yep. Yeah. Yep. It, it was. It, and and we, we we were still doing local recordings, and so so mine failed. And then Fred's failed, and I think I, and I know mine failed, so it's partially my own fault. There was like three on. recordings where we where somebody's failed every single time. And, and, that's, the, and the scary part about all this is, is that you know we're the wizards at this, according to everybody I know. I know. Yes, exactly. we know more about this stuff than well, anybody. Well, that's that's why we're using Skype and not doing local recordings anymore. Yeah. So that's the uh, that's it. now, Ron. Can people can you give people a little bit of your background? Sure. Um, I mean, photography wise, at least you know, it, uh, I'm strictly a hobbyist. My my. Uh, you know, my, my history with photography is pretty much inextricably tied to travel because when I first started doing some traveling, I borrowed my brother's camera and that was sort of when it all came together. Um, but, you know, on the more professional technical side of thing, I guess my, my background with cameras in general is more along the, the movie camera world. Um, I worked in the visual effects industry for a number of years and did a little software company that made an application called Shake. Which is uh, a compositing tool, and that was uh, that was picked up by Apple. Apple acquired us, and so I was with Apple for a number of years. And while I was at Apple, I also ended up working on the Aperture software for a little bit in there too. So actually, what we what we just saw released—that's the stuff you worked on. A little bit. I started working on. I got pulled into Aperture um, probably just a few months before the first release of Aperture. Before any any of it went out there. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I had a little bit of a touch on, <laughs> on that, and then uh, on and off throughout some of the original development work. I left Apple about uh, almost a year ago, I guess. But yeah, I, I was definitely involved with a lot of the uh, planning for what was going to be in this this new this new release that came out. And a lot of it made it in there, and a lot of cool stuff that you know I was hoping would make it in there didn't quite get in there yet. But I'm sure it's still on the schedule somewhere. 
it, it, some not today, but um, when we have both Ron and Fred on, we're going to have to talk. We'll, we'll definitely have that discussion of Aperture and Lightroom. And I thought we would do it. Well, I thought we would do it in a video and have each of them play one of the Robotron guys. <laughs> so it's like the, the blue Robotron and the red Robotron. On guy. the right, we've got Aperture. Yeah. <laughs> At two hundred forty pounds, yeah. representing Lightroom, it's the blue <sighs> Robotron guy. You know, the, the, or, the or you can have Lightroom as one of the political candidates and Aperture as the other one. <laughs> that would be good, yeah. I'm not saying who's who, but <laughs> you can do it. <laughs> but which I one? I saying Lightroom is. Yeah. You know, I, I think anybody, Fred can attest to this, anybody that's worked on a piece of software sort of has a, a love-hate relationship with it. So probably half the time we'd be on the other side. <laughs> absolutely absolutely yeah because when you when you love a piece of software then you go work for the company that makes it and you get to mm-hmm. peek under the curtain you know <laughs> there's, a certain, there's a certain amount of mystery that gets taken away yeah <laughs> sausage sausage is like law i mean i mean um, software is like sausage and laws you just you know you, you want to play with it you don't actually want to know how it got made exactly. <laughs> so the uh so we've got um we've got some fun news uh big news um so we uh getty has gone private yeah, they sold for two point four billion. That's with a B, billion, billion dollars. Now they've been that was they were kind of on the block for a while, weren't this they? This has been working forever. Is and that I, a good price? Yeah. I think so, given the fact that you know, look what iStock Photo has been able. Well, to. Well, iStock is part of Getty now. I, I know, but what I'm right. saying is, look at the model that they have introduced and right. what that's done to the value of stock images. Is what I'm saying. Right. And, you mean- Driving it into the ground, kind of. Well, I mean, you know, the prices have gone down. Let's face it. So that means the inventory in Getty is worth less. So I think it's a good price, and and obviously they wanted to sell it, and you know, uh, you know, the stock industry as we know it has been dead a long time. Um, but it, it, there's no no denying that something like this is news. I mean, it's a it's a big uh, deal. Who bought it? It's a private equity firm. Okay. I've never heard of. Yeah, so they, you know, someone someone came up with two point four billion and said, "I'd like to have a collection of images." <laughs> you know, I was going to do it, but I, I, you know, I was just like a point one billion short. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm just see, I was, I was, I was about two point four billion off. You know, well, I would have thought Microsoft picked them up, and uh, you know, they're they're on that tear of acquiring companies right now. So. It, it would have been a, it would have been a probably a an astute buy, more astute than Yahoo um, for for Microsoft, but it would have been very frightening for for well, us. You know, does, any, <laughs> does anybody remember that Bill Gates one time said he wanted to own every publishable image in the world? He said that, and Getty was available, and he didn't get it. Apparently, he changed no, his he's mind. He's no longer CEO. I think that was the problem. That must be it. Yeah. So the uh, so you know, it's interesting that Getty really uh, has collected pretty much the, the gamut. I mean, from very expensive stock photos all the way down to iStock. You know, they just kind of snatched up everything in between, right? Yeah, they did. And you know, the old line guys that made a really good living in stock photography, they're okay because they all have grandfathered contracts. But there's about 90 of these guys on the planet, and everybody else, forget about it. If, well, I mean, you, if you think you're going to be a stock shooter and you're going to work under one of these mass market systems put together by these companies, you know, forget I gotta, it. I got to say, we, have, we actually have some members that are making reasonable amounts yeah, of money. Yeah. Okay. So reasonable amounts of money. Well, not compared to you. Pay, I mean, they, you know, they're not making a million dollars a year. They, can I they understand pay their that. mortgage? Yeah, they're paying okay. their mortgage with so, it. So that's good. How many images do they have to sell to pay their mortgage? Uh, some, a lot of them have put up a handful of images. I mean, they, they put up a, a handful. I mean, it, it depends on what you're putting up. You can't put up anything. I mean, a lot of it, you have to go. I mean, this is what we've been looking at because we're, we're doing some, some tests with iStock Photo. And 
when we put up stuff, we're looking at what is already getting downloaded a lot of, and then we just look at... And what's nice about it is that data is very transparent. So we can see, okay, this kind of photo is doing really, really well. What's in that family that we can produce that's, that's like that? So in the 80s, one single photograph that I licensed through a stock agency brought me $64,000. Those are the days that are gone. Oh well, and, and that's, those days are those those days as as ele- as the electronic revolution continues. I mean, yeah. you know, we're not selling CDs for sixteen bucks a piece either. You know, so I think that that's part no, of no. I'm just saying that that that's yeah. what I'm. That's what I mean when yeah. stock is dead in that regard. It's mm-hmm. and I'm and I'm glad for iStock Photo because I use it. You know, often, <laughs> but I'm so d- often. and I'm not trying to do anything to denigrate iStock Photo. I'm just pointing out though right. that that model has changed and put a lot of downward pressure on the market. So right. that's why I still think. You know, they were lucky to get $2.4 billion. We've talked so, about this. So for Those somebody days that's... are gone, but uh, Scott, you had a $64,000 day. I mean... I was, six, was it a question? Hey. Was it a question? <laughs> <laughs> so, but for, for somebody that wants to get into it now, I mean, what's, what, is, it's got to be more than just, okay, I'm throwing a photo up there. It seems like there's, you've got to do some... I mean, is there any piece of sort of marketing in that photo or, or well, the, the, at least the art of tagging it, I suppose? The, the, yeah, I think that, the, the, as I said, I think that when you're... If you're looking at posting something to something somewhere like iStock Photo, um, uh, w- and this is the research we found so far, is that you really want to look for... Uh, either videos or or images that are already doing well, so you get a sense of what people are actually buying. What what is very valuable is people because that means you have to get releases. That's harder to do. So if you can get people, larger numbers of people, um, ob- a lot of times also abstract stuff, people things that people can use for backgrounds, things they, they can use as inserts. Um, people doing certain things in for industries like biotech, tra- um, travel. You know these are the these are the kind of uh, groups. You know. Uh, um, Genentech makes a thousand presentations about biotech, and they buy all of those images. <laughs> you know, so Just things that are timely to the you know current events, like like we were talking about before, politics or global warming or things like that that are that you wouldn't necessarily find in the library, but you know someone can go out and shoot it right now and have it available. Yeah. Niche stock works still, though. I mean, yeah, I, I sell my bird stock pretty well, but that's all. In I run a website called avianstock.com, and all I sell is stock images of birds. Right. And so if you find a really small niche, you can super serve that and make a little bit of money, but right. not a lot. Right, because I, I mean, I, we have a couple members that are making more than I am, <laughs> you know, doing stock photos just for iStock, and, and that's what they're, you know, they're just kind of cutting through all that stuff. And you need a new that. agent. Yeah, well, I'm not... <laughs> I, yeah, exactly. So anyway, so the uh, I'm I'm my own agent. That's the you know it's like being your own lawyer, right? Yes. So uh, so the um, so also uh, moving on though, we have uh, a cool site. Now here's some. This was uh, posted to the uh, Delicious feed. If you're listening, uh, you can go up to delicious.com. We're gonna put a video up sometime soon on how to do this. But um, if you go up delicious um, delicious.com um, or just delicious, I think you just type in delicious, you'll get uh, you can link to Twip Ideas. Um, just tag it. You just want to tag Twip Ideas um, when you when you link your delicious, and we see them. And this is one of the sites that was posted by our listeners, um, G Nor. Uh, if, if you put your um, if you actually put your name in there, it's easier for us to understand who who it is. But uh, it's called Strobist. Uh, I don't know if you guys have seen this uh, website, um, Strobist. Great site. It's great. It's just. This is this is our website pick of the week. Yeah, website pick of the week. Um, just a, a incredible uh, reservoir of. Of more training and, and ideas and and uh, things to really uh, expand your knowledge in the photography area. Ron, you've you've uh, checked it out. Yeah, I've looked her. I mean, for somebody like me who doesn't, I mean, I'll admit I don't. I'm not good with a flash. I haven't used it much. You know, like I said, most of my photography is done while while traveling and uh, 
you know, I'll occasionally pop the flash for to get some fill light or something like that. But you know, it's uh, there's there's a lot of magic in flash photography. I don't understand. And so I've been over there a few times trying to figure out, you know, exactly what, even just some of the basic stuff. Like, what do these terms mean in, in the, the Canon world, for instance, when you have uh, the, the different modes and that sort of thing. And they even have, I mean, there's a whole section on, I was looking uh, yesterday on, on assignment. So it's just all these things, whether you're a real estate developer, stargazer, you're shooting basketball, they have all these tips of, of how, you know, photographers, you know, approach that. So, um, so I think it's, a, it's, it's pretty interesting. So strobist.blogspot.com, uh, we'll put it in the show notes and you can uh, check it out, but definitely check that out. And uh, also, also in the news, um, Sony has uh, introduced yet a, uh, a new camera. I know you'd never think that Sony would come out with another camera, but uh, uh, 13.6 megapixels uh, for about $350. Yeah. So that this is a little this is a little pocket camera. $25 per megapixel. We're exactly. Exactly. <laughs> the um, what's interesting though is I think we are seeing while while the megapixels went went higher, and I I think that mega I think 13 I will say. I think that 13.6 megapixels in a little handy cam is more than you need, generally. It is. I think that 8 eight with more sensitivity would be great. Yes, it would. Uh, I think that the average person shooting would be much happier with that. Yes, they would. Uh, Amen. The, uh, but they, the other thing that's interesting is to watch, I think, what, what we are seeing is the new race, which is the ISO goes to 6,400. Now, we don't know what that means. Yeah, and that, yeah, that's my problem with it is that that may become the new race, but until somebody starts looking at uh, the quality you get out of it, I mean, you can, you know, you could crank the ISO up doing a lot of artists. Essentially, you're just, you're just kind of, aren't you just doing a gain? That's all. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. yeah. And it, I mean, you know, it's, you could do the same thing yourself if your camera can shoot underexposed and you can just, you know, shoot two stops down and then, uh, you know, push it back up in post-processing. Right. And, you know, it's effectively every stop is doubling your ISO. Yeah, but it's going to look like you know dog poop, which is what. So I think that that's the thing right now, and that's the thing I think people need to be careful of is that when you start seeing the, the number, the new number that we're competing about, you know, we're competing against uh, is uh, ISO. I think that's going to be one of the ones that we're going to start seeing because megapixels are kind of as big as they need to be. The average person doesn't need them to be bigger, but I think there's going to be a lot of people pushing for this, uh, you know, highest higher ISOs, but they are not created equal. I think that, you know, if we if if I were to be alive a hundred years from now, I'm sure that the pocket cams would come with one billion megapixels. <laughs> one billion megapixels for nineteen dollars and ninety five cents. Exactly. You, you can you have it on a keychain so. because they've they the marketing guys have won this thing. They've won. They've convinced all the consumers that megapixel madness is all they have to care about. So I right. sit. I'll sit sometimes at a Best Buy or a Circuit City or one of these retail stores, and I'll just sit up there at the camera counter and hear the conversations. Right. And and the question that almost everybody asks: How many megapixels? Right. But guys, I, don't you think that maybe the secret is out on this, or am I just being naive? Because I think, I think for us, hear, it's out. You hear it all the time that you know it's not a question of of megapixels anymore, and and you know when you try and cram too many in on a small sensor, yada yada. Um, you think that the general public though is just going by those specs, and that's it. Which is why we need more people to listen to this show so that Absolutely. we can solve that problem for them. Because that's public service. That's it, Steve. Not enough of the average consumers know about this. Yes, the people who listen to TWIP are more than likely already aware of it. But the people who aren't listening to these shows that aren't paying attention to the photography magazines or the other photo forums online, they have no clue. And they've bought into the mass marketing that more megapixels equals more 
quality and so that you know they're gonna buy it and they're like well this camera has the same megapixels as scott's really expensive five thousand dollar camera so it must be as good and that's why i when i see a new camera like this sony with this increased uh, iso I'm, I'm kind of like i want to see the results from this thing because eventually you know someone's gonna sort of figure out that uh they're gonna actually have breakthroughs in terms of these these higher isos well, and a I, small gap and i still think this is this is actually related to a question that we had from the blog um, someone asking why Scott is thinking of spending $17,000 to switch from Canon to Nikon. And that's specifically because Nikon has had a breakthrough, I think. I, yeah. I think that the D3 and the, D, and the D300 are breakthroughs in uh, sensitivity for a camera. Yeah, it, I, saw the, I saw the 6400 ISO picture from the D3, and there's this little tug on my heart. <laughs> guys, I got to tell you, you know, I I actually have the uh, the I have the D3 on loan from Nikon, oh. and that and they, you know, just just to pour some more salt in their wound, they sent the camera over with a bunch of lenses, and you know, I'm I am a Canon shooter. I was a Nikon shooter on film in the Air Force. Went to Canon, went digital, but now even with the gigantic price tag and the pain of switching all my lenses and strobes over to Nikon, it's it's almost worth it because that camera is it's almost so superhuman tempting. in terms of yeah. in terms of light sensitivity. I mean, you know, you can actually shoot things at twilight and get a good image. You know, it's it's amazing. So so uh, uh, Fred, when are you coming over? That's what I want to know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I got I got some I got some really good gin here. We can make some good martinis. Uh, <laughs> and there must have been some sort of mistake. Did that package didn't say Scott Bourne on it, did it when it came to you? <laughs> it did, but I opened it anyway, Scott. Okay. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> now Ron, what no what we didn't ask you what you're shooting on. Uh, I'm shooting on Canon as well, and I'm going through the same sort of things. I mean, I originally bought in uh, with the 20D, and at the time, you know, it was exactly what I was looking for. It was you know, which which gives me this sort of the highest quality low light shooting because again, you know, as most of my photography is when I'm traveling around, it's, that's a, a key key issue. Yeah. And um, so I bought in the 20D, and I just upgraded to the uh, the 40D, and. Um, you know, which is a good camera, and it was it was a worthwhile upgrade, absolutely. But you do have to look at the the D three, and you know, I've looked at. Um, I mean, I don't think the D three hundred really has world class uh, low light stuff. I think it still is comparable with the five D, um, but the D three is obviously in a in a world of its own. But for me, you know, again, as most most of this is going to be me carrying the camera around. That's a big camera. Yeah, and is. I like I like you know the more compact nature. <laughs> well, here's how I solved the problem. I came very close to switching, and mm-hmm. and I decided not to because you know it's not just the seventeen grand because that actually would have only gotten me the base kit that I need. That wouldn't have covered my five and six hundred millimeter f four is lenses, which together are another seventeen. I just you know it's like the time that it would take to switch everything. So I decided for now I'm going to just hold off and hope Canon innovates and. However, all this talk last week about film and then all this stuff where I was looking at new cameras, I did a boo-boo. I couldn't help myself. I went out, I went out and bought an X-Pan. So I found a mint-condition X-Pan 2, which is very rare. They only made a couple hundred of them. And I ran my first roll of film through it yesterday, and I have to say it was very nostalgic. I had to really think about how you put the film in. Uh, <laughs> but, it, it, you know, it's, so that, that's I've, – I've sort of – tempered my lust for a new camera with that 
So how did it feel, Scott, to, to load film and, and shoot film? I mean, well, first of all, I was ridiculed at the film counter when I went up and asked for some AGFA 64 because they said AGFA's out of business, born. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> this isn't 1977? <laughs> yeah. And then when I said, how about some Velvia 40? They said, nope, they don't make that either. Now they got Velvia 50, though. And uh, so it just kept going and going. And so finally, I'm using all these film stocks I've never even heard of because they don't make the old ones. So, But it was kind of fun. It was, you know, I was immediately reminded of the limitations of film. You know, we were out last night at Twilight shooting and... You know, I was stuck with this ISO 50 film in the camera, and as the light dove, I was like, boy, I wish I could just punch this up to 400, but can't do it. And then I was like, eh, okay, I'll just... And, uh, and all that time you spent staring at the back of your camera trying to figure out why your image was so dark was kind of a waste, too. <laughs> yeah, I was looking, you know, I do, have, I, I do have an LCD on there, but there's no friggin' histogram, you know, so it's a... Uh, but hey, I tell you what, now this is innovative. You know, I was going to buy a light meter, right? Because you got a you got a film camera. Oh, I've, I've heard of those. And and <laughs> and this is a rangefinder camera, by the way. This isn't even an SLR, and wow. and uh, it does have an in, in onboard metering system. But I thought, you know, maybe I ought to buy myself a meter. And then I thought, wait a minute, I already have an, uh, a meter, my G nine. So right. I'm using my G9 to get my live histogram preview of things <laughs> and see what the light looks like. And then I make my exposure on the Hasselblad and press the button. How, how cool is that? <laughs> I've been, uh, yeah, my, uh, my little obsession this week was uh, HDRs because I'm trying to get this video done for the, for the show. And we, I, I was going to show how to build HDRs in, in Photoshop. Mm-hmm. And then I, was, then I started looking at, uh, we had a question about uh, Bracketeer, Pangeer software, Bracketeer, and then I also downloaded Photomatics and got them to send me the software. And so all I've been doing all all week is shooting. It's it's it, it almost you know it's this, this obsession with shooting uh, high dynamic range and tonal, tonal map. Now, have you guys shot much of that at all? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've done I've done quite a bit of it for you know for film work. We do this a lot uh, in the visual effects world, as you know, right. uh, where you know you. If you're going out and you're shooting a background, you shoot bracketed exposures so you can get the full dynamic range of the scene. You can and get we're all also of the using deep. that for lighting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And, and backgrounds too, but all, yeah, yeah. Uh, if you're doing, you know, image-based lighting where you sort of use that environment to light your CG scene. And, 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 uh, and I, th- I feel like the same thing that's happening uh, that was happening in, in our industry, you know, uh, same thing that was happening in our industry ten, uh, you know, five years ago or six years ago, which was that a handful of us were using HDR and everyone else thought we were crazy. And I think that when I started going out and shooting sunset, sunrises and sunsets and, and all kinds of other stuff in HDR, just by simply turning the bracket on on my Canon, you know, just, just setting up, I want two stops either way and just hitting the button. Um, when you start making tonal maps, and I'm going to post some of these to the forum um, or to the, to the blog, uh, when you start seeing what you can get out of you know a couple exposures apart, uh, it's a pretty uh, it's pretty addicting. Uh, it's it's not good for taking pictures of people. You do need a you know a couple seconds here and there. You need a tripod for it. I, although I do do some handhelds, which I'll show. I do think I do think it's fun, and uh, you know there's some images you can make, but. You know the old-fashioned way of using a fill flash on the foreground and letting the ambient yeah, but light I, I did, work in the back. Okay, still well, works well too. I, did, I shot one. I, I'll, I'll post one to the forum. I shot of San Francisco with the sunset coming up, and that would be have to be one mother of a film flash. I understand. <laughs> I, I understand. It's not always. It's not always possible. I think it's cool. I mean, you obviously know a lot about this stuff, and we obviously have a lot of listeners interested in it because I was a little bit surprised the the forum traffic when you mentioned HDR. It picked right up, and a lot of people said, "Me, me, me, me." I want to learn. Yeah, so we're so gonna we're, we're gonna post. We're gonna, we're, we do 
listen to that stuff, so yeah. we're going to work on that. And, of course, it was going to be up this week, but now Alex has turned it into an Alex thing, which means seven months from now, it'll, <laughs> it'll be an Academy Award motion picture. It will be up. It will be up over the weekend. I, I got all the software. I've shot all the images. It's, it's now done. You know, so it's uh, we're, we're, we're past all of that, and, uh, and I... Um, and I actually thought of a new patent for it, but we'll see. We'll see. It. But I, uh, we won't get into that. So the um, what were we gonna say? Yeah, do you guys, you guys remember? You remember film, Scott? You were talking about film. You remember the technique for taking exposures of crowded scenes so that there are no people in the scene. You remember? You know how to do that? Yeah. So do you know? Did you know in Photoshop there's a there's a way not to not to plug Photoshop products or, or Adobe products, but there's a way that that you know speaking of HDR, you can shoot a series of uh, very quickly of uh, a static scene on a tripod, of course, um, with crowds moving through it, and it will intelligently merge them together and remove the people. And well, really, keep the I thought it was just static. there. To, I thought it was just there to fix like uh, lots of people smiling and and so on and so forth. Nope. I didn't. Nope, nope. You can also use it if you, you know, say you're in Union Square, just shoot uh, like five or six images from a tripod and use that feature. It will intelligently know that, oh, this is a building and that was a person and remove the person. Therefore, you you have a, uh, a scene with no people in it. What's that called, Fred? Um, you know what? I knew you were going to ask me that, um, and I'll post it to the blog, Scott. Okay, How's post that? to the blog, and that'll be a, that'll be a video that Fred will be doing for us later. And yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so Fred will be working on that. That'll be great. Uh, and Guys, we'll- can I just uh, bring something up just for yes. a sec? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just want in all this retro talk. Uh, I've been doing a lot of printing lately, and I've been using this new Epson uh, Exhibition Fiber Paper for black and white. You found and some? Yes, I did. It's I hard did. To find. I did. I have to tell you, it's 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 the most amazing paper for black and white images. Uh, it it really is a nod to the old the fibers of old. It's got an F surface, which is kind of a glossy surface, and the feel of it, the look of it, it really does feel like a high end black and white, you know, traditional darkroom produced fiber print. What are you really printing? Beautiful. What are you printing on? I'm printing on an Epson uh, 3800. Well, I got and that same printer, and yesterday my box of that paper arrived. Oh, you will not be disappointed, Scott. It it really is beautiful. Deep, deep, beautiful blacks, great tonal range. And, uh, you know, probably you, you'll be able to make prints better than you ever could in the darkroom because of the precision now with digital. But it really is, it really is beautiful. That's a perfect segue, Steve, uh, to something that I need to talk about. Every week, uh, as we do on some of the other podcasts that we're, some of us are involved with, we're going to have a photographically related pick of the week. And uh, this week, the the pick is a book, and it happens to be up about printing. So you brought that up at a perfect time. It's a book by Andrew Darlow, who is a great guy, photographer who lives in New Jersey. He's he's on the circuit sometimes. He's written a book called Three Hundred and One Inkjet Tips and Tricks, and it is about the size of the New York phone book. Mm. I mean, it is a big fat. I mean, you're getting your money's worth. It's like 31 bucks on Amazon. If you're interested in learning each and everything you might ever want to know about inkjet printing, just get this book. It's the seminal work on on the subject, in my opinion. I sat through and actually read the whole book. 528 pages. 528 pages. Hopefully with a lot of pictures. Yeah, there's a couple of pictures in there. And, And Andrew spent a big chunk of his life working on this, and, and he's the most sincere, uh, mild-mannered, friendly, unassuming guy. He just did this because he loves photography. And 
I got to tell you, I'm so impressed with this book. I've purchased copies of it for friends. Uh, if you're interested in learning a lot about printing and getting the most out of your printer, that's our This Week in Photography Pick of the Week. Uh, next week, somebody else on our staff here will get to make the pick, but I get to do the first one. And uh, thanks, Steve, for the segue, because that was perfect. You know, uh, Scott, I've met uh, Andrew Darlow. He is a great guy, as you say. And just to let people know, um, he's got a website. I don't know if we can promote other people's websites, sure, but sure. you brought up the book. It's called imagingbuffet.com. Yes. And on it, you'll, you'll find his, his book there and all kinds of interesting stuff. He has tips and he has a newsletter and uh, the, the, he's a wonderful guy. We're, we'll have him on the show sometime um, because he's, he's, he, when we, we'll get together a bunch of inkjet questions from our audience and then we'll, we'll have Andrew answer. In fact, in fact, if you have some, make sure to go up to the blog, twip, uh, yeah. twipphoto.com, and uh, ask. We'll start building the questions. We won't necessarily for next week, yeah. but we'll, we'll start building all these questions so when we bring them on, we, can, we have all the que- your questions that we can ask them. Now, this actually relates to a question that we got from the blog. Um, this is from uh, Terry, uh, I want to say, uh, Deeger or Deeger. Maybe when you send us your question, you can send us a phonetic spelling ah, of your name. Just, you know, it should be easy. It looks easy. But it said, um, uh, Terry asked, I, I'd like to see a show on or, or, or um, what do you do with your digital photos after downloading them to the computer? I've heard some people have routines like unsharp mask them and then uh, unsharp mask them all in Brighton. Um, what do you guys automatically do to a digital shot to make them better? Is there anything that you guys automatically do? Well, we Load got- them into Lightroom. Flip <laughs> <laughs> into aperture. There you go. I, I, had, I had to get that in there. That was okay, okay. That's and step so one. it begins, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> that's step one. The carnage yeah. in the left. So, so the uh, uh, so is there anything that you guys do as far as processing um, to the photos uh, as you bring them in? Well, one thing I would say is that. Uh, just generically applying something like a sharpness is is a bad idea because really that's the kind of thing you should do with an output medium in mind. So you, you don't really want to sharpen by default. I think you want to choose sort of what resolution are you going out to and then sharpen. If you're going to print it, you're going to be doing different kind of sharpening than if you're going to be doing something for the web. So I would, I would never recommend doing a, a sharpening pass as a, as a kind of an import automatic sort of thing. Now, do you, you know? What, I have a. Oh, this is and this is probably a bigger question, but when, when it comes to sharpening, when, when what are the basic settings in unsharp mask that you guys uh, uh, think about when you start doing that? I don't use unsharp mask. Okay, well, Scott, <laughs> go, go ahead. Yeah, I think there's there's definitely some smarter sharpening tools out there. Photoshop and Lightroom and Aperture all have uh, smarter sharpening stuff because you really you know sharpening is it's a hack. It's not. It doesn't. It can never bring back lost detail. So all you're doing is really increasing contrast in, in transition areas. I mean, you know, when something goes from light to dark, the sharpening process is just sort of increasing contrast in a very localized kind of an area. But you can go too far and you'll get what you call ringing, where those edges look like they're glowing almost. So you know, I think what Scott's referring to is uh, tools that do some more intelligent sharpening, where first of all, they only, they only apply sharpening in areas of uh, noticeable transition. So you kind of detect the edges first and you don't apply sharpening all over the the image and that's particularly true if you've got sort of a noisier piece of imagery something that has a lot of grain or or uh, or noise in it you know sharpening can be death to that because it sharpens the grain so something that's smarter about how it sharpens is a is a key factor in this i saw a pretty amazing demo of the uh, sharpening capabilities of lightroom yesterday down at adobe courtesy of our friend fred here 
And, and I saw some sharpening tools that I was not familiar with that uh, kind of blew my mind. So I'm going to be testing those. But otherwise, in Photoshop, I use high-pass filtering. So you do a layer that's high-passed? Yeah. That's about, it's about what I was, was going to say is generally, um, uh, and that was something I learned from someone in pre-press, yeah. um, that uh, uh, was to make a copy of the layer, do a high-pass filter, and that gives you a great, that's basically what the Unsharp Mask is doing, and then you simply do you bring it back as an overlay? Yeah. Yeah, so you bring it back as an overlay layer, and that gives you that adjustment. You can adjust the, contra- you can adjust the opacity. But I may start doing it in Lightroom, because I'm wow. going to give Lightroom a pretty fair shake. I... Fred was nice enough to arrange a meeting at Adobe, and the product manager showed me some stuff. And you know, it's uh, it was it was interesting. It was uh, it's got me rethinking my you know marriage to Aperture. I'll have to wow. say that we're we're just we're we're just you know very promiscuous here. You know? <laughs> we don't know if we want to stay with Canon. We don't know if we want to stay with Aperture. We're we sleeping don't around. Okay? Yeah, we're we're just everywhere here. You know, so the uh, that's that's a genetic trait of the photographer. You work with whatever. <laughs> <best for> you. <laughs> there is and no drink loyalty. a lot of wine. <laughs> hey, we had a we had a follow up uh, question um, from uh, listeners. Uh, jo- uh, Jeff Bolton um, was asking about. We we talked a lot about shooting on the street, street rules of what you can and can't do last week. And one of the things that um, that Jeff Bolton was looking for was some some tips on taking good candid shots without offending people. So we talked about what the legal requirements were last week. What do people? What do you do to make sure that you're not offending people when you shoot? I bring a very very attractive young girl with me, and she asks permission. <laughs> you know, you know that sounds <laughs> really. You pop out from behind a bush. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of like she's the hitchhiker, and then the car pulls over, and then I jump out on the yeah. curb. <laughs> <laughs> I have to admit, I have to admit, we 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 have we do have a pattern of um, oftentimes bringing um, uh, uh, women that are near models or or actual models to uh, get get release forms signed when we have to do large numbers of people because it it does work better. Um, so, but the uh, other 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 uh, other tips, we'll bring a long lens and uh, right. just don't let see you do it. Well, I would say, like, I, I tend to do a lot of that stuff using short lenses. And my, my sort of um, uh, approach is, you know, if I'm shooting on the street, I will see something that's happening. I will try and capture it candid. But when using a short lens, you know, people are going to notice you. Um, so if they notice me, I might just say, oh, don't worry about me. I'm a photographer. Just keep doing what you're doing. Sometimes that's enough, and they ignore you again and continue doing what they're doing. You can keep shooting. But sometimes they want to know more information, so then I obviously would tell them. And, uh, you know, once, once they know what you, who you are and what you're doing, uh, then you're not a threat anymore often and they'll let you go about your business kind of thing. But uh, it's, it's not always an easy thing to do because these days especially, everyone's got their eyebrow up kind of wondering, you know, what's going on and who you are. So um, there's no easy way to avoid kind of dealing with people, I mean, except for using the telephoto lens like you uh, described. And it depends on the, what, what you're going to do with the images as well. So if you're planning on posting these as stock to iStock, then you're going to need to approach that person and get a model release if, they're, if they appear in the photo and they're recognizable. So yeah, if, you're, if you're doing commercial things, there's no way around interacting with the people. If you're just shooting for yourself because you want to play with your 3800, then, you know, then you, know, you, just, you can hide behind that bush and shoot with a long lens. Now, come on, uh, Fred. This is a this is a kid friendly show. We don't talk about playing with our thirty eight hundreds here. <laughs> well, the, hey, I'm just I'm just saying. <laughs> I find also that if I'm if I'm shooting in there's and it's it's contextual. Like someone sees if I'm out on the street shooting a lot of things, and then I happen to be shooting them, they're they're much less uh, uh, taken aback by it 
whereas if they turn around and I'm just shooting at them, um, that tends to be, I, I tend to get a more uh, uh, quick reaction um, from people going down that path. Do you guys remember that Spiritone store that used to be in the back of all the magazines? And they had this thing where you put it on your lens the and right you look one way. Yeah, you look one way and you're photographing somewhere else. Those those things were great. You know, I, I, I spent I when I first <laughs> I spent um I spent about three weeks training myself to be able to shoot from my um from the from my sternum. You know, so I got I, I actually I can actually shoot a sign walking um and and have it in the middle of frame it's just kind of like so i would because with a digital camera with a film camera it was impossible to do this because you just didn't have enough feedback but with a digital camera i get very very good at knowing exactly where my camera was pointed and so um, i i don't use these for ads or anything else but one of my one of my things to do is walk down the street and you can get some really interesting photos with a wide angle lens where you, very candid when you're firing in a crowd you know um i've done it in india and a couple other places where you get this scene uh that you wouldn't get as soon as you pick the camera up Alex, I just had this view of you with a wide-angle lens standing in a crowd shooting from waist level. What what would you see? <laughs> from that it's a little out? higher than well. If someone's if someone's right in front, of you, shut a up. lot of knees. <laughs> shut up. Um, but so, that whole idea of shooting from the hip. I mean, that's that's as as old as photography itself. And there were like the great street photographers like Gary Winogrand. I remember seeing some video of him. The guy was just so fast. He would just go and click, 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 and he used a Leica, which was very kind of uh, unobtrusive, and people just generally didn't even know what hit them, basically. He would move so fast, and I think that's part of it, too. The more comfortable and quick you are with your camera, um, I think you'll have a bit of an easier time when you want to kind of, in quotation, steal those moments from time to time. But uh, sometimes when you, you know, meet people and you end up talking to them, you, you, you find you're, you're, you're getting into even better uh, visual possibilities as well. So. I, I got to say the new, you know, when I upgraded from the 20D to the 40D, the 40D has the new live preview on it where you can actually see, uh, see something on the LCD uh, and not have to have your eye up to the viewfinder. And it has proved surprisingly useful in a couple of situations. When I, you know, I just got back from a couple of weeks in India the same sort of thing where you can kind of hold the cam- camera and something looks like a casual pose, but you have that live view turned on and you're, you, can, you can still get a little aiming out of the corner of your eye. And the other nice thing about that is because the mirror has to be up for that to happen, the camera's a lot quieter whenever you uh, press the shutter. You don't get that full mirror slap noise. Mm. Yeah, one of the things that I really liked about the old, um, the old Nikon forty five hundred, and there was a nine hundred before that, was this funky body. You know, it was one of those that twisted in the middle, and they have a new one that's kind of like that. But uh, when I'd be traveling, I tr- did a trip in Africa where, with it, and one of the things is, is because I could twist it, I could be looking at the, I could be looking at the preview on the LCD and be pointing at the person. And they were clearly thinking, I'd be in a crowd of like two or three people talking to them, and they were clearly, look, it looked like I was just reviewing photos. And, um, and I got, you know, a lot of great images out of that. So, so anyway, what we need is like a little feed to the glasses. You have like little sunglasses and you have a little good. video feed and then uh, you'd be set. Now, speaking of photos, uh, we, we, have, we, we had a Flickr challenge. Yeah. We had a winner. What, Scott, fill us in. Um, well, the, the Flickr contests are proving to be popular. About 100 entries again. The theme was rock. I just want to underline, we have 1,200 Flickr members. In less than three weeks. In less than three weeks. Hey, hey, hey. Wow. And I got a call from Flickr yesterday going, uh, guys. Uh, <laughs> Who are you? What are you, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing over there? Anyway, um, yeah, we, we picked a couple images. Steve helped me again. And uh, Steve, do you want to talk about them? 
there was some beautiful stuff in there. There was actually uh, a couple of shots. Well, there was one shot that looked almost identical to your shot that you had posted uh, earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But there were there was some some interesting. A lot of people interpreted it in different ways. There were the actual rocks, and then of course there was like rock and roll. There was a lot of that, and uh, there was there was some some really nice stuff. It was it was a tough decision. Well, what we're going to do this week because I want to make sure that you are visiting the blog is we're not going to actually tell you on the show who the winner is. You have to go to twipphoto.com, and you will see who we picked as a winner. It was it was a, a tough choice, but uh, we picked a winner and a runner-up, and the winner is going to get a copy of my book, 88 Secrets to Selling and Publishing Your Photography. And we're going to keep this going. Next week, we got a theme that Alex suggested, and the theme is signs. I, I, I'm hoping that we have, you know, given the size of our group, and the number of people all over the world, I, I find that we we've done this this specific challenge in the Pixel Core before, and it's just a fascinating thing to watch people shoot signs from all over the world. So yes, it is. So um, find some signs and try to compose them well, and and uh, give us something that really uh, emotes, you know, emotes the sign. Now, everybody always emails me after we do this, guys, and says, "Well, can you give me something else to go on?" The answer is real simple: No. <laughs> it's your problem. We gave you the topic. You interpret it. Now, in the spirit of things, we want you to go out and shoot something this week. This is all designed to help you. It doesn't help us. It's designed to help you. We want you to go out and shoot this week. But you can post images you've taken before if that's the way you prefer to do it. But, you know, get your camera and go out and work. That's how you become a better photographer. Shoot a sign or two. Po- Please only post your best. There are some images that were in this week's competition that were good, but we had to disqualify them. Because they posted more than one image, and the rules are very clear. You can post one and one only image. So give us your best. Also want to point out to you that if we choose your image next week as our favorite, you're going to get a free book. And this time, it's a better book than my book because it's Steve Simon's book, The Republicans. It's a photo essay that Steve shot during the Republican National Convention, I believe. Is that correct, Steve? Yeah, that's true. You don't have to be a Republican to appreciate the book either. It's, that's good uh, to know. Depending what your <laughs> political leanings are, you'll probably find something in there that will uh, keep you happy. And, and we're going to give a copy of Steve's book away to next week's winner. Now, I do want to say this. We're going to try something different the following week. A lot of traffic and, and mail traffic and some stuff on the forums about a critique session. People want to see some critiques. So we're going to start alternating this. After next week, we're going to take a week off from the photo competition and we're going to do photo critiques. So we're going to do them every other week for a while. And this is a test. We may go back. We're going to see how people feel about it. And we're going to set up a whole new Flickr discussion group just called Twip Critiques. And people are going to be able to post an image there and get critiques. And we're going to have all the info about that also on the blog. So we're going to have two Flickr discussion groups, the generic TWIP Flickr discussion group and then the critique discussion group. So this will be the third week in a row we've done a a photo assignment. Then in week four, we're going to switch to critiques. Week five, we'll go back to another photo assignment. Week six, we'll switch to critiques. And then I'm going to depend on all you guys to help me do the critiques. And, And also, we're inviting the entire team, i.e. all of the TWIP nation, to jump in and give their critiques as well. We'll have more info on that, but we're going we're gonna to do critiques because people seem to really, really want them. Now, we gotta, we got we to gotta be careful, though, because Steve Simon has been known to give some pretty saucy critiques, so i, I got to tone Steve down, but otherwise we'll be <laughs> I don't, Always encouraging, always encouraging, but you know what? I mean, that's the one thing I think that photographers really, if they're not thirsting for it, they should be, because 
you know, constructive critiques can really sort of, you know, be an epiphany for you in your work. And often, you know, on places like Flickr, you'll get nice photo, nice photo, which is great. And we like to hear that from time to time. But if you can get a little gem that makes you see something in a new way and maybe gives you an idea as to how you can, you know, maybe improve on things, then that is like solid gold. Yeah. I really want you to post the images you think you need help with. Now, I know that's going to be hard to get people to do because you want to show off. Everybody likes to show off their best work. But if you want the critique form to really be valuable to you, post an image that didn't work. Say, hey, this didn't work. Tell me why. You know, that's that's how you get the most out of critiques. I have to tell you, I've had some very painful critique sessions when I was starting my pro career, and they helped me immensely. It was not easy to hear. And the other piece of advice I have is don't act like the American Idol contestants when you get your critique. <laughs> don't act as if you're all that and it, you know it doesn't matter what these people think because that's just bad form <laughs> yeah no that's the thing that you any in any form of art the hardest thing is to is to be able to take a critique and and be very uh open to it but it's one of the most important things i mean that's the way you move move the fastest from point a to point b i mean the, one of my focuses has always been to surround myself with people who know more about whatever i want to learn than i do and then suck their you know suck their brain out you know, so and when he says suck their brain out, he really means suck their brain out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Every once in a while, Scott notices and he has a bit of a headache and, and he says he doesn't feel too well. And it's just because I was standing behind him with a little with my little uh, vacuum. And then I look in the mirror and I look like that guy in that scene from Silence of the Lambs where his head's like cut open. And <laughs> nice. Nice. OK, so um, one of the other discussions uh, uh, that people have been asking about is focal length. So why do we pick the focal lengths we do? What are the rules that we follow? Are there any rules? And uh, what are the advantages and disadvantages of different focal lengths? Um, does anyone have any any strong opinions about these? I, I have an opinion on that. So I, uh, you know, in the, in the past, and I, I'd be interested to get some some feedback on this. In the past, the rumor was um, using zoom lenses, the uh, the visual acuity or the sharpness of the image was less than if you used a prime image and now or a prime lens. Um, but today, I'm hearing that that's no longer true. You guys know if that's if that's still true. Can you use a zoom lens or one of today's modern zoom lenses and still get the same sharpness as if you picked a prime? I don't think you can generalize on on that because I th- I think absolutely the new high end zooms are sharper than the primes of old and 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 there's no question but then you've got like these cheaper zooms that are sort of slower and uh the quality there i don't think is is as good i I think a lot of it has to do you know sadly again with you you kind of get what you pay for a lot of the time yeah no but you you have that uh you have that that nikon 14 to 24 is it yeah zoom yep i got one of those And, and it's it's amazingly sharp I yeah, I, I mean that seems to be sort of state of the art for wide zooms, and it's uh, I've, some of the tests I've seen is just, and that right there is another reason that I'm thinking about switching over to Nikon. And hey, Ron, only that, that lens run. doesn't doesn't distort, does it? Have, have you noticed? I mean, even at at the 14 setting, it, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. All you Nikon guys, <laughs> just you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> you know it's not scary. Not only is it sharp, but it it actually looks really good on that body. So it's well, there's there, there are three Nikon things that I covet. That lens is one of them, and trust me, that is boy howdy sharp. That's what we call yeah. boy howdy yeah. sharp. That's not just sharp. That's ah, boy howdy baby. sharp. And the other one is the two to four hundred VR. Two to four hundred. Yeah. Wow. Two to four hundred. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
It's five thousand bucks. And, and two to four hundred. Does it like start out behind your head? And <laughs> well, it's two hundred to four hundred. <laughs> two hundred to four hundred. Quit it. <laughs> you knew what I meant. <laughs> so now, now beyond beyond Zoom or or fixed lenses, uh, what do you what do you what is the process that you're, that you're going through when you decide I want to go wide? I want to go. I want to zoom in. It's it's more than just I'm standing close or I'm standing far away. Often, yeah. I think you know the technical issues aside. It's uh, I I love a photo that sort of gives you a different perspective on things. So if you really have something that's ultra wide, I mean I, I love shooting ultra wide kind of stuff. I have on the uh, you know the Canon side of thing. There's a 10 to 22 that only fits the the cropped bodies like the 20D and the and uh, but you know that 10 millimeter, which ends up being about a 16 millimeter, is still a really wide view. And I think it just it really adds something to the photos whenever you get a different view on reality, something that would be a lot different than what you get out of your out of your eyes. So I, I love shooting wide angle just for that reason. And the other interesting thing about wide angle then with that is. You can do some really cool stuff with getting up extraordinarily close to a foreground object and still getting the the big wide background in the scene. Yeah. Well, the other side of that coin, of course, is the extreme telephotos allow you to compress the scene, and you can make things that are in, in in the background appear to be very near each other. I have a photograph that I've done well with that is a single strand of tulips growing in a tulip field, and behind them, about a mile and a half, is a whole field of tulips. And because I used a 400-millimeter lens to shoot it, I laid down on the ground, shot the front strand of tulips, and it brought the back strand, the whole field, right up like it looked like it was right behind it. And so, you can, you know, perspective is, whoever said the word perspective, that's the key for me. I'm looking for uh, whatever perspective I want to create. That's, that's how I choose the focal length. And I try to shoot everything that's important with a wide variety of focal lengths. As I talked about on the first show, I, I want to change the focal length around so that I, I get different looks at stuff. I have to yeah, admit, I, I, oh, go, ahead. go ahead, go ahead, Alex. I was say I was in a bit of a rut. You know, I'm, you know, I mean, people have seen my, uh, I think my my little dot uh, Mac account. And I have lots of pictures of my son that were all shot with a fifty, which is, I guess, about really about a eighty, about an eighty. On your and mind. um and uh, so that those are all shot with that. It's really fast. I really like uh, the fixed lens and the, and the fast. But I, but that's I've been shooting on that for like a month and a half. I mean, just just you know, shooting lots of stuff with it. A uh, little lazy, and I borrowed uh, Scott's 14, uh, Canon 14 millimeter. F- 15, 15. I'm sorry, 15, uh, uh, over the weekend, and you know, I had so much fun with it. <laughs> I was, you know, I, I was just shooting. I, what I wanted to do was shoot some landscapes, but I ended up shooting pictures of my of my son and my wife. And in shots that I, you just you just need that super wide angle where she's holding him up, and and he looks like he's really close. She looks like she's far away, and that's what that wide angle created. Um, you know, the, the the drawback, one of the disadvantages, of course, the the, the shelving looks like it's uh, like it's bowing. Yeah, you know, there's a this huge bow behind it. You know, that's so the distortion is the thing that you're going to start well, you, to give up, depending on what kind of lens you. Well, get. see, you can get a, a rectilinear corrected lens. Unless you have that 14 to 24, you won't really get that distortion. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> but, you know, nice. further to the wide angle, I agree with Ron. I mean, it does give you kind of an intimate uh, view of, of the world. But the one thing, too, and it can be very dramatic when you put your foreground up close. But, but the one thing that I've often seen that I don't really care for all the time, and that is, you know, people that use that effect just constantly to the point where, you know, the first thing you see in the image was, ooh, that was taken with a wide-angle lens. And in a way, I, I like the idea of using a wide-angle lens in such a way that uh, you kind of 
try and minimize your distortion when you can. And I always try and keep the lens perpendicular to the ground, however it is I'm shooting, because that helps to, to minimize the distortion inevitably that you're going to get with the very wide lenses. And of course, some people pictures are best not taken with an extremely wide lens, else you make them look like Mr. Ed. <laughs> 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 yeah, you can get some very, uh, very odd effects uh, with that, with that process. Fish eye, yeah. Alex, you, Alex, you should check out that ten to twenty-two on the Canon, though, because it, it is a rectilinear lens, so it doesn't uh, cause massive, you know, curvature to be introduced, but it's still extremely wide. You know, I think, I think I am because I, I really uh, now I have to make the decision though first is whether I'm staying. Whether I'm staying with this Canon is going to be so odd if we all switch to Nikon. Yeah. It started off as an all Canon. Because well, then we, we got worried. all this hate mail that we were nothing but Canon fanboys. <laughs> so if we switch to Nikon, then we'll get nothing but hate mail that we're nothing but Nikon fanboys. <laughs> I think I think our reasoning is valid. I, I think that this is uh, and, and I uh, before I buy any more lenses, I have to. Now I'm going to hold out with Canon. I'm going to hope that they innovate. But I got to tell you, they're 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 sucking wind. I mean, I moved yeah. from I moved from Nikon to Canon specifically because I wanted the SDK. You want to be able to control the camera from the uh, from the computer. Well, and I'm old enough that I moved from Nikon to Canon because of autofocus. <laughs> <laughs> Canon invented autofocus, and at the time we didn't have it, so I switched to Nikon or from Nikon to that. Well, this was before. God, that almost deserves that almost deserves a in my day comment at the beginning. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, it clearly does, but I just thought that was self-explanatory. Now, speaking speaking of firing from the, from the camera, one of, another question that we had is why is the what is the advantage to tethering we, we had it in the blog that aperture 2 now will tether mm-hmm. will let, allow your camera to be tethered um, and the question is what's the advantage of doing that of tethering your camera to your to your computer just lets you you know it's something that studio shooters like to do right uh, product shooters in particular um, uh, people who do fashion work uh, mm-hmm. it just allows you to immediately process that stuff right through Lightroom or right through aperture uh, Lightroom, you can kind of do it. Fred can tell us about that if he wants to. Aperture, you can do it. And and it's just, it allows some controls. And, and I've personally never needed to do it. Mm-hmm. And I don't think there'll be a very large contingent of people that do it. But I do know this, the folks that need it are very vocal about it. Yeah, I mean, we don't, we've, I know from a video point of view, we don't, we shoot almost everything we do in the studio to drive. You know, right. so it's kind of the similar thing where we would never, <laughs> we would never actually want to go to, <laughs> go to a, of, of uh, you know a compact format. Well, it's like I've seen setups where a product photographer is working with an art director, for instance. So the art director is actually sitting with aperture up on the screen, and they're shooting tethered into aperture. And as the shots are rolling off, the art director is is grading them, deleting them, rejecting them, whatever. And uh, so it's a very quick real time workflow in a high capacity production environment. And even yeah, in photojournalism, a... I'm, I'm sorry, Fred. Well, I was just going to say, even in photojournalism, um, I don't know how fast it can go. I've never used it either, but I've heard that, you know, at a big sports event, for example, you can have the editor at the controls of the computer, the photographer in the field. If it's if they're close enough to be tethered, then you know they could be shooting and they can get the stuff you know on the wire as quick as possible to to get it out there. Yeah. And the same for model photography, I think. You know, like you, like you, Scott, you were saying earlier, if you're in a studio environment and you've got the art director or the client sitting with your assistant behind you at the machine running, you know, Aperture or Lightroom, and you're, you can concentrate on the model and they're back there sort of doing the organization and, and uh, you know, deleting, and that just sort of saves a whole step. And they can look at it on the gigantic 30-inch display as you click the shutter. It's just, it's just a really nice thing. But, you know, other than that environment, I don't, 
you know, I can't see me carrying my, my MacBook Pro out with me on location somewhere. I do that all the time. But <laughs> <laughs> you know, for, for somebody like me who's not uh, an, an expert in the studio, it's, it, I've done it a couple times. And it's really handy because you know I don't have an instinct for how bright does my key light need to be relative to my fill light or something without having to dial it in a little bit. And you can kind of you know you can set up your lights and then you can kind of dim one down or put a scrim up or something to kind of modify. Uh, how how the lighting is hitting your your subject, and you can see that so much better than trying to, you know, pixel peep on, on the little tiny LCD. Be great for teaching as well. Yeah, it, yeah. that's another application. Absolutely. So I so if you have more questions, uh, make sure to come up to twipphoto.com and uh, and post them there, and we're going through them. We're trying to grab as many as we can uh, per week, and uh, we're going to try to get to yours. So uh, we'll get to as many as we can. There's we, no way we can answer them all. The 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 wave just keeps on getting bigger. But so. you know, you can also post questions that you want help with in our community over on our Flickr discussion group, which is more than twelve. 1,200 photographers strong, and it's really growing quickly. And, and, and I got to say, I'm very proud of our audience because, you know, for some reason, I don't know what it is, photo communities tend to get snarky faster than, faster than almost any other kind where people get snippy and kind of short with each other. But our community has not been that way. They've been friendly. We've only had one troll to bounce out of 1,200 people. So it's, it's an amazing group. I hope it keeps going that way. And we haven't had to put a very heavy hand on it at all. Everybody's just been doing the right thing, so we appreciate that. And it's Twip Photo. Twip Photo is the group, right? Or Twip, is it just- yeah, Twip, it's Twip Photo is the group, and you've got a link right to that group. You can join it right from our uh, blog at twipphoto.com. Also, um, we have a video coming up pretty soon that will show you how to join Flickr. We get, we've got lots of email going, I don't know how to join Flickr. I don't know how to join the group. So right. we, we actually have produced a couple of screencasts that will show you how to join. There's also a very extensive help at the Flickr.com site. I'm, I'm really starting to fall in love with Flickr. Uh, it's, it's got so much utility for a show like ours and for people like us. So. Uh, also, you're going to say? Um, oh, okay. That's uh, also, next week we're hoping we're hoping to have uh, we have a special guest. It looks like it's locked in. Ryan is going to be here, and uh, he's he's the it's Ryan Brenizer from from the Amazon's he's the Am- Amazon's photo columnist. Yeah, yeah, and uh, he's going to get in with an official review of the Nikon D3. We're doing that on account of we're all such canon fanboys and uh, <laughs> uh, so we're gonna do that hey before we do anything else i want to i, I want to make sure we get this in alex we promised a tip every week we missed last week so here is our twip photo tip of this week uh-huh. and uh, you know i'm big on acronyms because i'm old and i forget things so i use acronyms to help me remember what to do and and for people just starting out in particular who want to dramatically improve their photography i've got a really simple three-letter acronym that'll get you started it's called sas and it stands for subject attention simplify so whenever you're going to make a photograph ask yourself what is the subject and if you're going to make an image and there's a bunch of stuff in that photograph that doesn't relate to the subject exclude it and then secondly attention how do you draw attention to the subject that might be by getting closer that might be by making sure there's a a really nice light on the subject it might be by changing out the background or blurring the background and then the third part is simplify cut out any little intruders make sure there's no merges in your photograph make sure nothing is there that doesn't help tell the story so that's SAS now there's a second acronym that helps you do that called LUDA look up look down look all around 
And by making sure that you check out the entire scene, looking at all four corners of your viewfinder, looking at everything that's in the field of view, there's nothing there that shouldn't be there, then you snap the shutter and you get a much better image. Now what this involves is maybe being 30 seconds more thoughtful than you would have been otherwise. That 30 seconds is the difference between a great photo and an okay photo. So that's the tip. And I think that's a big that's that, that's something that happens a lot with people who are just taking snapshots who are getting started. Uh, you'll see a lot of branches coming out of the side of people's heads, poles coming out the top of their head, um, funny things going on behind because they didn't look all the way around uh, that image. They have a great Com- composure they have they have a good image except for not paying as much as quite enough attention to the background yeah and i think that whole the paying attention to the background thing part of that is uh just making sure that you're thinking about what's what's really showing up in the viewfinder not what's what do you know is there you know a lot of times you know i'm taking a picture of this guy but you don't you don't think it through enough to say oh but there's a pole coming out of his head because you're you, you know that the guy is way in front of the pole so you tend to forget the fact that the camera's going to see that pole Right. So relating to the actual image rather than the uh, your story about the image. Yep. <laughs> also, um, uh, we've got this coming coming up uh, this week. Uh, we're going to have more videos. We just shot one. I don't. We're hopefully going to get it out between now and the next show, uh, which is uh, we shot a video with Scott talking about tripods. Uh, we shot it right before this show. And, and ball heads. And ball. Well, mostly ball heads, right? Yeah, ball heads and camera plates and tripods. Yeah, and um, I have an HDR that I owe everybody uh, an HDR image or an HDR uh, compiling. What I'm going to do is I'm going to show how to build tonal mapped images in um, in, in HDRs in Photoshop, uh, Photomatics, and uh, and Bracketeer. Um, this ranges from twenty bucks to a, to a thousand. <laughs> so, so we'll look at a couple different options on uh, how to put those together. I really think that when you see some of the results uh, that that you can get with this, I think people, I think we're going to end up with a lot of uh, of our Flickr members firing stuff up there. We'll, so we'll have to have some sort of HDR theme soon in the photo yeah. assignment competition. Yeah, it's it's I, I I couldn't imagine now. I have to admit, I couldn't imagine shooting a scene that I didn't take three exposures of <laughs> after I started shooting some of these because of the, the ability to have the entire exposure was, uh, was um, pretty seen. Not, not people, but the scene. So, uh, so anyway, uh, check those out. Those videos will be coming up. Uh, we're going to start getting uh, some of our other guests uh, making some videos too. We're going to uh, tie that up, so um, stay tuned for that. And uh, make sure to post. Um, don't forget to post your, your ideas to Twip Ideas at Delicious. Um, we, we do look at those. As I build the, the list um, for the week, I'm going through that and, and trying to find uh, good good articles uh, and uh, trying to find a couple of them we can use for the early news. So uh, help us help you. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, hey, Ron, can anyone find you? Uh, can, can people find you on the web? Do you have a website? I've got a few, but um, I just started one. I got after everybody that is involved with digital compositing knows that uh, people always say, "What's this digital composting?" So <laughs> So I went ahead and registered digital composting. So, so I think I'm going to start blogging there. There's a couple of things up. But uh, yeah, generally digitalcompositing.com. And uh, the second edition of my book on compositing is actually available for pre-order on Amazon. And it is, it's, we, we, in the Pixel Core, we call it the good book of Brinkman. <laughs> it's definitely one of those things you just have to have if you're doing digital, uh, digital compositing. So definitely uh, check that out. Uh, Fred, uh, can people find you on the web? They can. They can find me at frederickvan.com, F-R-E-D-E-R-I-C-K, van.com. It's my uh, my sort of ranting. Uh, I'm sort of all over the place on that blog, but it's dedicated to photography, but I tend to uh, go off on different tangents. 
but so be advised before you go over there. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, where can people find you on the web? Uh, stevesimonphoto.com and I'd also like to invite you guys and any TWIP listeners in the New York City area uh, next Thursday from 6 to 8 I have a, an exhibition opening uh, me and a, another photographer named George Zimbel at the Leica Gallery on Broadway in New York so if you guys are going to be in New York City please come on down that sounds, that sounds great I wish I was in New York City I was going yeah. to go but that's the day that, that Apple's releasing the iPhone SDK Steve so Oh, okay. Well, that's a good excuse. Yeah. That's a good excuse. <laughs> also, I, I just want to let people know that uh, from our side, we have um, the. There's a new show that will be slowly. You know, the way iTunes works, it just slowly works in. You can go up to Pixcore.tv. It's called the Grip Guide. This is not so much. It's somewhat photography, but it's if you're sitting on a set and you want to know what to do with those C stands and lights and gear and everything else. Uh, we're gonna have Brent By, who's just an amazing shooter and amazing grip. Uh, kind of walk you through the process. So um, uh, check that out. It's the first first episode starting to make its way through iTunes, and uh, and by the time you get the show, hopefully you'll be able to just search on iTunes and find it. So and if you want to see some of my pictures, you can go to avianstock.com. Excellent. Uh, until next week, everyone, uh, go out and st- stop listening here and just go out and take some photos.